I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. You know, I wanted to take a moment and just talk about the title of this show, The Empowering Neurologist. What does it mean? It really means that I, as a neurologist, am doing everything I can to provide you knowledge. Knowledge is power. The ability to understand both sides of a story so that you can make the best uh, choices that you can make as it relates to your health. You know, we are told, for example, that we should basically live our lives as we choose. And then when we suddenly note that we're having difficulties with our cognition, we're not thinking straight and forgetful, uh, that we will take some kind of magic pill and that's going to make everything good. Uh, the reality is there is no such pill available yet. Hopefully there will be, but it's why I am doing my very best to bring you the other side of various stories. It's not just neurological conditions that we talk about, but heart disease, for example, uh, how diabetes can be treated by lifestyle change. These are all important other sides of the story that you may not have heard. And this is the focus of our program. That's what the empowerment piece is all about. Today, we're going to chat with Dr. Daniel Amen. I've known Dr. Amen for a long time. His new book uh, the mem uh, is called Memory Rescue. Let me read you the subtitle, Supercharge Your Brain, Reverse Memory Loss, and Remember what matters most. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Amen. The Washington Post has called Dr. Daniel Amen the most popular psychiatrist in America and ShareCare, uh, which is a, an online portal for learning information, for distributing information. Uh, you can find uh, my bio and information in there as well. But they've named Dr. Amen the web's most influential expert and advocate in terms of mental health. He is a double board certified psychiatrist and 10 time New York Times bestselling author with such blockbuster hits as Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, Healing ADD, Change Your Brain, Change Your Body, and The Daniel Plan, co-authored uh, by uh, Pastor Rick Warren, along with our good friend, Dr. Mark Hyman. In November uh, 2017, he published the new book that we're going to be talking about today, uh, Memory Rescue. Dr. Amen is the founder of the Amen Clinics, which has seven locations around the United States, uh, with uh, one to be added soon. The Amen Clinics have the world's largest database uh, of brain scans that relate to behavior, totaling more than 135,000 SPECT scans on patients from 111 countries. So a very wide reach and uh, a very uh, great deal of expertise in terms of leveraging that data for outcome. Uh, his research team has published more than 70 scientific articles on a wide variety of topics that ultimately relate to psychiatry and brain health. And Discover Magazine named his research on uh, distinguishing uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from traumatic brain disorder, uh, brain injury rather, as one of the top neuroscience uh, stories in 2015. And hopefully we'll touch upon that today. Uh, Dr. Amen has hosted 11 uh, national public television uh, programs about the brain, which have aired more than 80,000 times all across North America. So today we'll be talking about his new book, just published. Uh, very excited about this interview. Let's get started. Well, hello, Dr. Amen. I'm just delighted to have you on the program today. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Uh, you know, I think a very important pillar of your new book is that while we all want to do everything we can uh, to focus on Alzheimer's uh, in a preventive way, your book 
I think throws a wider net well beyond Alzheimer's and dementia, but it's really a brain health book for everyone. Can you uh, give, us, give us a sense as to what that really is all about? Well, let's say 12 years ago, I wrote a book with my friend Rod Schenkel called Preventing Alzheimer's. And I really got this little nugget from that book, which is if you want to prevent Alzheimer's disease, you have to prevent all of the risk factors that cause it. And we know what they are. But there's so much that has happened in the last 12 years, including us doing the first and largest study on active and retired NFL players, uh, that I wanted to write a program that was much broader than Alzheimer's disease. So this is the plan in my mind. If you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it if you think it's headed for trouble, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And we came up with a mnemonic that we like a lot. It's a memory device to help you remember all of these risk factors called bright minds. And this is the best referenced book I've ever done. There are 1,600 references. Actually, encourage the publisher to put them in the back of the book. There are 50 pages of references because there is great science behind here are the right things to do to keep your brain strong for as long as possible. You know, if I could just amplify that, uh, you said, well, for people who think they may be at risk or heading for, uh, but really when you look at the statistic that shows at age 85 that 50% of people will be diagnosed, you know, I, I think we should all assume that if we avoid other issues, other diseases and trauma, there's a, a, at least the flip of a coin chance that we're going to end up uh, as an Alzheimer's patient. And you bring to our attention the fact that these choices, these 11 choices, are really well substantiated in the scientific literature and are very powerfully uh, meaningful in terms of uh, ratcheting down your risk. And they're also uh, good for you for other issues as well. So Maybe we can go through the mnemonic a little bit, the Bright Minds mnemonic, and talk about uh, what the uh, what each of these stands for. You, you know, before we do this, let's just give people a baseline on the hippocampus. So it's something I have fallen in love with, with this book. It's really the star of, of this book, which, as you know, is Greek for seahorse. And the, the hippocampus are these two seahorse-shaped structures on the inside of your temporal lobes. And in, in one study I read, you actually make 700 new stem cells, hippocampal stem cells, every day. So I think of these as baby seahorses that you can put in an environment to help grow them and make them stronger and integrate into your larger hippocampus. Or you can put them in an environment that kills them, that shrinks them, that makes them weaker. And so at the end of the book, there's actually a story. It's called uh, Scarlet and Sam, the seahorse twins, you know, what helps and what hurts them. And I, I just I love this idea because um, it, it makes it a little bit more personal that there are things I can do that actually grow my brain and there are things I can do to shrink my brain. And it's a new concept for the book. 
if you love yourself, so the ultimate act of love is doing the right things. Because, you know, so many people go, well, I don't want to give up um, bad food. I don't want to give up this or that, my pot, my wine, whatever. And, and I'm like, well, ultimately doing the right thing is an act of love. And so, you know, getting to the risk factors, B is for blood flow. Uh, the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease is low blood flow, especially in the hippocampus and in the back half of your brain, the parietal lobes, an area called the posterior cingulate gyrus. And so well, what are the things that hurt blood flow? It's being hypertensive. So high blood pressure, low blood flow. Even being prehypertensive is associated with brain atrophy. So if we're thinking about optimization, if your diastolic blood pressure is 88, that's probably a bad thing for you. Um, heart disease, any form of heart disease, your heart and your brain are incredibly connected because your brain uses 20% of the blood flow, 20% of the oxygen, and anything that damages your heart damages your brain along with erectile dysfunction. So we're talking about blood flow. If you have blood flow problems anywhere, it likely means they're everywhere. And I read one study from Harvard that said 40% of 40-year-olds have erectile dysfunction and 70% of 70-year-olds have. I mean, that's horrifying. <laughs> and... Um, it, it means you have bad habits is what really what, what I think it means. Well, you and I were uh, lecturing in Fort Lauderdale a couple of years ago at, at uh, uh, A4M, as I recall, big audience. And you were talking about the relationship between erectile dysfunction and overall vascular disease. And I got to tell you, the audience perked up at that moment and became very <laughs> interested in what Dr. Amen was talking about. I want to go back to a point you raised a moment ago, and that is, well, we know that hypertension, high blood pressure is a risk factor, but even pre-hypertension is a risk factor. And I want to just kind of dispel this notion that we have these defined categories of pre-diabetes versus diabetes, that this is a continuum. You're not okay as a pre-diabetic and suddenly in great danger as a diabetic that you know, when you're so-called pre-diabetic, your blood sugars are starting to elevate, your A1C is coming up, you're already doing damage to your brain and your heart and your immune system and risk for cancer, et cetera. So, I mean, it's like, I, I say to people, you know, it's like uh, being pregnant. You either are or you're not. And in this case, you know, when you even have subtle elevations of blood sugar, as you talk about, or uh, mild elevation of your diastolic blood pressure that you just talked about, these are important risk factors right now. There's not a sudden threshold where everything's good, it's good, now suddenly it's bad, that it's a continuum. So we really have to jump on these numbers aggressively. So important. And the, the lab test is, um, so we like SPEC because uh, it's a measure of blood flow and the brain. Um, it's important to get a CBC because if you're anemic, you're actually going to have low blood flow to the brain, um, get your blood pressure measured. And so for each category, it's like, okay, what are the risks under that category? What are the labs? What are the interventions? And so exercise becomes hugely mm. important. 
important uh, because exercise helps to widen blood vessels, lower blood pressure, increases blood flow to organs, prevent dehydration because blood is mostly water. Uh, that's critical. Hyperbaric oxygen uh, increases blood flow to the brain. I published a study in the Journal of Neurotrauma on soldiers who had blast injuries, significant improvements in blood flow with hyperbaric oxygen. And meditation, which actually fooled us because, you know, you'd think meditation, it would calm everything down in the brain. It absolutely doesn't do that, especially in your frontal lobes. It increases blood flow and activity. And from a supplement standpoint, I'm a huge fan of ginkgo and vinpocetine. There are brain spec imaging studies on both of them showing that they increase blood flow. So for each of these, we actually have, well, here are simple things you can do. And from exercise, my favorite exercise, people know this about me, is table tennis. But there was a study last year that came out. <laughs> I didn't out. know that about you. On 88,000 people um, in the United Kingdom, the people who played racket sports lived longer than everyone else. So football players live shorter than everyone else, soccer players shorter, runners actually didn't make a difference, swimmers longer, but it was tennis, table tennis, badminton, squash, racquetball that they lived longer. And if you think about it from a brain perspective, it, those are um, sports that really work the cerebellum. Yeah, and the they're engagement sports. I mean, it, truthfully, uh, there's not a lot involved in using the elliptical machine or jogging. I mean, your mind goes elsewhere, but you're exactly right. If you're focused uh, on hitting a ball and reacting to that, that that's huge. It's a, it's a global brain event. And, and with the spec studies we do, we've actually seen there's a dynamic tension between your cerebellum and your prefrontal cortex. So the more active your cerebellum is, the healthier your prefrontal cortex. And you may have heard about this term called cross-cerebellar diaschesis. Diaschesis, correct. Damage the left frontal lobe, but actually turns off your right cerebellum. And we can see it beautifully on spec. But if you activate the cerebellum, it activates your frontal lobes as well, which is critical if you're going to keep your brain healthy because it's involved in every decision that you make. You know, there's a, um, there's a graph that I use in some of my talks by Dr. Erickson and his group, collaborative study, UCLA and University of Pittsburgh, looking at uh, size, basically just the size of the uh, hippocampus, the memory center, if you will, over a one-year period in people who get some form of aerobic exercise versus those who simply stretch. The stretch people, their hippocampus, as you would expect, decline in size, whereas those who were aerobically exercising, their hippocampus increased in size. That's worth the price of admission right there, that exercise translates to growth of your memory center. I mean, it's so challenging that you know, people, they want to know, what do I have to buy? Well, you got to buy a pair of sneakers, or in your case, maybe you got to buy a, a new uh, racket for, for table tennis, but you, it's not that challenging. And you have to do something you love because then you'll actually do it. Um, and in the book, there are 110 ways to grow your hippocampus, which we get excited about. Um, the R in Bright Minds is retirement and aging. When you stop learning, your brain starts dying. And uh, 
education is a very important part of Alzheimer's prevention, but it's an important part of just keeping your brain healthy. If you're in a job that does not require new learning, you actually have a higher risk of memory problems. And along with age, if you have low acetylcholine, higher ferritin levels, that promotes aging. And um, another really interesting one I learned a, a lot about in writing this book is social isolation. So the more disconnected you are from people you love uh, or from people that bring you meaning and purpose, the smaller your hippocampus. And there's a study from Baltimore that found volunteering actually increase the size of the hippocampus. Um, and so new learning and social connections are critically important to keeping healthy. And so I think everybody should measure their um, ferritin levels. Uh, and if they're high, figure out why. But if it's high because you have high iron, you need to go donate blood. Okay, why that, that, might that be an issue? Um, because high iron actually promotes uh, resting uh, or free radicals and oxidative stress in the brain. And so I'm outside of the spice market in Istanbul with my wife, Tana, and I see quail for sale and little baby chickens. And then there's this big jar of leeches. And I look to my wife, I go, why do they have leeches? And she said, well, that's uh, a health uh, fad where people believe if they bleed themselves that it actually promotes, uh, you know, bone marrow health and it decreases iron stores in the body. Now, low is bad, but high seems to be bad as well. So we're up to uh, the eye in bright. So I is inflammation. The first I is inflammation, which is a major cause of depression and dementia. Wow. Let, uh, let's stop right there. Inflammation is a major cause of depression. I'd like to go through that if we could. So very few people actually know that. But in the studies using um, looking at C-reactive protein, there is a higher incidence of depression in people who have high C-reactive protein. Also, people who have a low omega-3 index, uh, which is uh, a study helped to be designed by Bill Harris from Omega Quant. Uh, I think he's the University of South Dakota. Um, the lower your omega-3 index, the higher your risk for depression. Brand new study out yesterday from Joe Hibbelin from NIH. Uh, vegetarians have a high incidence of depression. And when he was writing about why, part of it was low omega-3 fatty acids. I published this. By and large, we're talking about overall low levels of omega-3s, but also in terms of the ratio to omega-6. Correct. And we did a study here last year where we looked at the omega-3 index on 50 consecutive patients who were not taking fish oil. 49 of them had suboptimal levels. Think about that. 98% of our population, now we have a skewed population. For no, sure. But 98% of a psychiatric, complex psychiatric population has suboptimal levels of omega-3 fatty acids. 
And how easy is that to fix either by high quality fish oil and probably the best thing is high quality omega-3 fatty acids and um, a, a much higher quality diet where you're eating fewer processed foods that often promote the negative uh, omega-6 fatty acids. And what are some of the common sources of those omega-6s that people should be on the lookout for? So corn is, you know, people think of corn as a health food, and it's completely not a health food. It actually has the worst fatty acid profile of all the grains. Corn is a grain. Um, Soy, uh, which is rampant. If you think of corn and soy as in virtually all processed foods, sugar is also pro-inflammatory. Some of the cheap oils, like vegetable oil, uh, are high in omega-6s as well. You know, the other thing you mentioned about corn and soy uh, is the genetic modification of those seeds. Why is that an issue? Of course, because it allows spraying that crop with glyphosate, glyphosate, the weed killer, having an effect on the microbiome leading to gut wall loss of integrity and, and another channel to amplify inflammation. So now but we're on what? G? For Bright? I'm sorry, but your book, Brainmaker, I mean, it, it's just a game changer. And in inflammation, we should also talk about leaky gut. That if you have a, a disruption of the cell lining in your gut, that that promotes inflammation in the body. And Uh, you know, we get to toxins, we can talk about alcohol, but my wife is a nurse. And so why do nurses put alcohol on your skin? Because it kills bacteria. And so if you drink too much, it can actually disrupt your microbiome. Um, If you're eating pesticide-laden foods, it can disrupt your microbiome, which also can increase inflammation. And so much of the food in our country is grown with uh, Roundup, and uh, that should horrify us. Well, there was a study that came out last week in the Journal of the American Medical Association uh, and indicated a dramatic increase in uh, excretion of uh, glyphosate metabolites uh, in measuring urinary samples from a few years ago to to those from from quite recently. So we know that uh, this is becoming very, very pervasive. And like alcohol on your skin, uh, we know that glyphosate kills bacteria. And that's one of the mechanisms by which it works. And, you know, the notion that uh, our human bodies aren't going to have an issue from glyphosate, therefore we can be exposed to it, that's ridiculous when we recognize that we are 10 times more bacterial cells than we are cells of our own body. So uh, your, your point is well taken, very well taken. Um, so treating leaky gut is important. The, the other thing I learned, and I mean I learned this a while ago, is if you have gum disease, you have an increased risk of inflammation. And quite frankly, until I read that, I didn't really care about my gums and I wasn't all that good at taking care of them. But as I kept reading study after study with periodontal disease and heart disease and cognitive impairment, I just became obsessed with my gums, the dentist, flossing, doing the right 
things because I love myself. I mean, you know, the reason to do the right thing um, is not because you should do it because then nobody does it. It's because you love yourself and it's actually an act of love to floss at night and get your teeth cleaned and go to the dentist and make sure that you're taking care of your, your gums. And from a supplement standpoint, so I'm a huge fan of probiotics. Uh, actually, I have a fun story. So I emailed you uh, about six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago, saying my grandson had Tourette's. I mean, it's full-on terrible. He's got motor tics and vocal tics, and, and I'm horrified. He doesn't live near, near me, so I, I didn't know what was going on. And so um, so I emailed you, and you were kind. Thank you for emailing me back gluten-free diet, probiotics. And so he did exactly what you said. And it took a little convincing on my part to get my kids to do this. But they did it. And I came back a month later and they were 95% better. I mean, it's unbelievably. So I am very grateful uh, to you. But if you're not eating right or you don't have the appropriate supplementation, it can ruin your life. I mean, both you and I know the devastation socially that happens with kids or adults who have Tourette syndrome. Um, so anyways, I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, omega-3 fatty acids, probiotics, curcumins can all help decrease inflammation in the body. But the most important thing is get your diet right. So before you leave curcumins, can you just explain what that means? So the spice turmeric uh, has in it curcumins that have been shown to have anti-inflammatory effects on the body. It's also, when combined with vitamin D, been shown to decrease the plaques thought to be uh, involved in Alzheimer's disease. So here we're huge fans of uh, curcumins. Um, Some people can get it. Uh, through really loading up their food with turmeric, uh, we actually like uh, to supplement with it because we think it can be more consistent. I have a a funny story to tell you. Uh, I was outside of the Today Show in uh, Rockefeller Plaza being interviewed on the Today Show. Sometimes they do a segment outside. And I was, we're looking at foods and spices and I was talking to the woman interviewing me uh, about uh, turmeric and, uh, and, and curcumin and how that changes gene expression to reduce inflammation. And years later, a couple years later, I was giving a talk and I have a slide of me talking to this person. And I realized at that moment that the, I was saying you should add this to your cooking. The woman I was talking to, her last name was Curry, Ann Curry. And uh, here we are talking about using uh, turmeric. So it was just... Uh, Retros, retroactively a kind of a cute story. That's funny. Um, it's so important. And in the book, I talk about how you can use spices like medicine. In fact, one of my favorite chapters is the chapter on food. And for each of the bright minds risk factors, I have foods to lose and foods to choose. So for example, for blood flow, um, it's beets and cayenne pepper. Both of those have been shown to increase blood flow. For inflammation, it's foods rich in omega-3 fatty acids like salmon would be an awesome food for that. Um, Interesting study today. I don't know if you saw it. 
um, oh, we, we talked about it, about how vegetarians have high levels of depression. And that's because they can't get in a vegetarian diet EPA and DHA to critically important omega-3 fatty acids for the brain. And people think of EPA um, for the heart and DHA for the brain, but I don't like people thinking like that because people have ADHD or depression, DHA is not helpful at all. It's EPA that seems to be the, the most helpful. Anyways, that brings us to G, which is genetics, which is so important. Um, and, and people have the idea of genetics wrong, I think. It's like, oh, I have it in my family. There's nothing I can do. And in fact, I think of genetics not as a death sentence. Rather, it's a wake-up call for you to get serious about doing everything else right. And then, as I just said, so if you have this higher accumulation of uh, beta amyloid, secondary, you have perhaps a, a one of the E4 genes, the apolipoprotein um, E4 genes known to increase your risk of Alzheimer's, um, you just have to be more serious. And curcumin and vitamin D have been shown to decrease those plaques, as has green tea extract and blueberry extract. So what you drink, what you eat can actually make a difference. And if you have the genetic risk factor, Exercise is critically important. In fact, exercise works better for those who have the genetic vulnerability than other people. And, um, and I wrote about this in 2005 because I knew the research on boxers who have the E4 gene. So boxers who have the E4 gene, so people have repetitive head trauma, they start to show cognitive impairment after their 11th fight where those who don't have the E4 gene actually don't show cognitive impairment until after their 30th fight. And so in my mind, children should not be playing contact sports, period. We should never put a developing brain at risk for trauma. Um, and, and my positions really shifted over the years because I was like, if you have the E4 gene, you should not play contact sports. I, Half the patients we see come to see us because head trauma is involved in it somewhere. It's massive. But if you have the genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, you have to be more important about protecting the brain. If I may, uh, just to throw a curveball here, uh, there was a recent study that came out that demonstrated in uh, indigenous tribe living in Bolivia uh, that the E4 gene was protective of cognitive function in those individuals who had the highest eosinophil count, i.e. the highest level of parasites. In other words, those who had the most parasites, if they carried the E4 allele, uh, they were more resistant to cognitive decline. So, you know, I think it just shows that while we talk about genetics, uh, it's certainly, we, you know, these overriding uh, principles that we talk about, there's always going to be an example that would help us understand if the E4 allele was so detrimental to humans, why has it persevered? Why do we still see 20% of populations carrying this allele? There's got, uh, you know, you've wondered about it. Why, what is, could the advantage be? And it turns out that that was an allele that has proven protective in terms of our uh, parasite infestation. So, an interesting little twist to think about. I'll send you that information. 
Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to see it. And in um, our friend Dr. Bredesen's work where he talks about how beta amyloid may in fact be a protective mechanism against toxins and infections. We're going to get to both of those uh, in a second. Um, my last five articles have been in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. And George Perry, the editor there, actually wrote an editorial on the death of the amyloid hypothesis as the major cause of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think it's probably a good idea to see if you can decrease it but if it's in reaction to toxins or infections, then clearly it's important to deal with those things. Um, we'll, we'll get there. So the H is head trauma. Uh, head trauma is a major risk for dementia. And those uh, of us that see NFL players, you know, there's just no question that they have a higher risk of cognitive impairment, depression, aggression, uh, secondary to repetitive brain injuries. And, and I think if you go, hey, Daniel, single most important thing you've learned from 135,000 scans, mild traumatic brain injury ruins people's lives. And nobody knows it because they go see psychiatrists, marriage and family therapists, psychologists who never look at the brain. And so they don't see how the temporal poles are damaged, how the frontal lobes are damaged. And, but, but by looking, what we have seen is traumatic brain injury just it ruins people's lives. Because if you damage your frontal lobes, so of, of traumatic brain injuries, 94% of them affect the frontal lobes. What that means, it's gonna, it's gonna affect judgment, impulse control, organization, planning, empathy, all the decisions you make. And in, in, in a society where we're literally in a war for the health of our brain, everywhere you and I go, someone's trying to shove bad food down our throat that will kill us early. The ability to say no, if you lose that ability to say no, you're gonna end up overweight, diabetic, and hypertensive, all things that damage your brain. So protecting the brain is just critically important to keeping your brain healthy. And if you've had a brain injury, we found all these bright mind uh, interventions. It's the same plan. This is what we used on our NFL players. And 80% of our players, we published this, 80% of our players show improvement when we put them on this program, uh, which we get really excited about. So don't text and drive. And my dog, who I think loves me, um, he's always leaving his toys around. So I'm going to go upstairs and, you know, I step on one of his toys and it could cause me to slip and fall. And it just means turn the lights on, be careful, don't be in a rush because this could take you out. And both you and I know the thing that takes out older people is they fall and they break a hip and then they get pneumonia and die. And it's like, be thoughtful, be careful. The, the T in bright minds is toxins. And I think this is the sleeper category. Um, and, you know, since I've been imaging people for 26 years, it's crystal clear to me, alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, uh, opiates, they're not good for your brain. And, you know, we have a poster that hangs in 100,000 schools around the world. It's called, Which Brain Do You Want? Healthy scans surrounded by drug-affected scans. And 
uh, but then I started seeing scans that clearly looked toxic of people who weren't drinking or weren't doing drugs. And then I'm like, well, why is that? And then that's when I learned about mold exposure and brain function. Um, I learned about pesticide exposure, carbon monoxide exposure, heavy metals, um, even anesthesia. So I talk about how controversial that is, but there are a number of studies showing that anesthesia is associated with lower overall blood flow to the brain. And for example, if you have coronary artery bypass surgery, that increases your risk of having cognitive impairment uh, and Alzheimer's disease. So, um, so we want to be careful, even radiation to the to head or neck and um, cancer chemotherapy can put you at risk for cognitive impairment. Chemo-brain. The, the answer is one, decrease exposure, so that's why you buy organic, so you're not getting pesticides. Um, there's a great app I love called Think Dirty, where you can actually scan all of your personal products and it'll tell you on a scale of one to 10 how quickly they're killing you. Um, horrifying. When I first like scanned my bath soap and hair gel, not that I have much hair, um, toothpaste, deodorant, I, I was horrified. You know, I've been like you, I've been reading labels for a long time and I don't put things in my body that'll hurt me. But I never once really thought about reading the labels on personal products. Mm. And, um, but, you know, I came to learn what goes on your body goes in your body and becomes your body. And there's so many toxins. Um, and, you know, girls are having periods earlier than ever before. Childhood depression is skyrocketing. And I think in part, it has to do with toxins, especially in the personal products we use. So the short answer for toxins is limit exposure and then support the four organs of detoxification. So drink more water to clear things out through your kidneys, eat more fiber and take probiotics to really enhance your gut's ability to detoxify, N-acetylcysteine for your liver along with cutting the alcohol, and sweat. Brand new study uh, from Finland. People who take saunas five to seven times a week had two-thirds lower risk of Alzheimer's disease right. than people who were just taking it once a week or not taking them at all. So, you know, I, I saw that study and I, I just wanted to say that uh, what was a little bit confusing was, was it the actual sweating or was it this sort of um, the low grade stress of being exposed to heat and then cold? I, I don't know. I mean, was that, um, you know, something that uh, a, um, a where a low grade stress can be actually beneficial? Well, you, you know, wild card on that study for me was someone who's disciplined enough to do it five to seven times a week. Likely they're starting with a better brain. Right. You probably know the and other issues in their lifestyle as well. Right. So you, you might know the longevity study, the one from Harvard, where they look at people over 90 years. The number one predictor of longevity was not happiness or a lack of worry. The don't worry, be happy people died the earliest from accidents or preventable illnesses. So I always wanted to be one of those people. I'm not. Um, <laughs> the, the, the number one predictor was conscientiousness. 
If you said you were going to show up and you showed up consistently, reliably, predictably every day, you lived longer than everyone else. And I would argue that's probably a frontal lobe function. So if your frontal lobes are good and you go, oh, I'm going to get healthy and then you can consistently do those behaviors. And so if you're taking a sauna five to seven times a week, that's discipline. And it could be the discipline along with the sweating that could be helpful. I want to go back and just make a comment about whether it's a physical trauma or environmental slash toxic trauma that I think it's really important for our viewers to understand that uh, while these may be solitary events in your life, you got a, a single blow to the head or a period of time in your life where you had multiple blows to the head, that it sets up what we call a feed forward cascade where once the problem begins, it continues to manifest and worsen over time, even though you've taken away the initial uh, event, even though you're no longer experiencing head trauma, as you've seen with the NFL players, the process can continue to worsen with time, that the inflammation can actually fan its own flame. And, uh, and the same thing, I believe, happens with toxic exposure. So you really have to consider that and ratchet up everything you can to offset and therefore, you know, the, the rest of the Bright Minds uh, acronym, I think, is really very important. You know, it's absolutely true. And once you've had an injury, are you putting the brain in a healing environment or are you putting it in a toxic environment? So many people who have head trauma, um, they can't sleep. They become more irritable. They start drinking more. So the lack of sleep and the toxins is accelerating the damage that they experienced. Um, the second I in of oh, the M in bright minds is mental health. Um, and this is just critical. And, you know, this is, you know, part of my unique spin on the world. But if you have untreated depression in women, it doubles your risk for Alzheimer's disease in men. It quadruples the risk. In fact, later life depression, some people think is actually a prodrome for one of the forms of dementia. PTSD increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and my specialty, untreated attention deficit hyperactivity disorder increases your risk. And you go, well, why does it increase your risk? Because untreated ADD is associated with head trauma. It's associated with more toxins, you know, drinking, drug abuse. Um, it's associated more with infections because the chronic stress decreases your immune system. ADHD is associated with, we'll talk about diabetes because uh, you have less impulse control. And in this society, it's going to make you more likely to be overweight. And it's also associated with sleep. And so treating these um, mental health issues is critical to keep your mind healthy. And as we talked about with Tourette's, um, treating it doesn't necessarily mean medication. Um, it um, you know, head to head against antidepressants, exercise is equally effective for depression. Head to head against antidepressants, omega-3 fatty acids, equally effective for depression. Head to head against antidepressants, learning how to not believe every stupid thought you have is equally effective as antidepressants. So in my mind, you know, let's teach you how to not believe every stupid thing you think, omega-3 fatty acids, exercise. Well, let's start with that. And, you know, I'm not opposed to antidepressants. I'm just opposed if that's the first thing you do. 
it's probably not the smartest way to go. Well, you know, the statistic is that about 6.5 million American children are uh, carry a diagnosis of ADHD, and about two thirds of them are medicated. Most of whom are medicated with um, stimulants uh, and basically amphetamines. And you know, the, the scary thing I think is that no one's really looked at the long-term consequence of that. I think there's spec imaging uh, evidence that we're not doing these kids any good in the long run. So uh, I'm all in when, when you talk about li reaching for the omega-3s, the exercise, the, the gluten-free diets, et cetera, on the front end and keeping kids off of drugs as best you can. So I just want to be really clear that when Dr. Amen is talking about we've got to treat these kids with ADHD, it doesn't mean necessarily writing a prescription. That's exactly why we're not here today. Yeah, we're it's not, not why the we're first thing I would do. Um, so there's uh, two studies from Holland. When they put ADHD kids on an elimination diet, 70% of them lost their symptoms. Unbelievable. But it's hard to get parents to actually, especially ADD parents, to, to you know, be consistent with an elimination diet. Now, if, if the interventions, the natural interventions don't work or they won't do it because that's important, then I think stimulants can be really helpful because you, you said something that's really important and, and I have a lot of experience with this. Untreated ADD is associated with a lot of bad things. So whenever, you know, if I get to the point I'm gonna put a child on a stimulant or an adult on a stimulant, they, they always go, what's the side effects? And we'll go over it. You could lose your appetite, it could impair your sleep, you could lose some weight. Um, for some people it can make them over-focused and anxious and obsessive. Um, but if I don't treat it effectively, and sometimes that means medicine, this, you, you know, you should always ask, what are the side effects of doing this? And what are the side effects of not doing this? Because untreated ADD is associated with many bad things. They use medical services four times uh, the level of the general population. They have more head injuries. They drop out of school. They, um, 52%, according to one study from Harvard, have problems with substance abuse. There's a higher incidence of divorce, incarceration, and so on. So for at least ADHD, I start with the natural things. And I actually wrote a book about it, Healing ADD. I talk about seven different types. Um, but I don't want people throwing away their medication. If the natural things didn't work, the medication can be critically important and if you're doing the natural things, odds are you need 20% of the medicine you would need if you weren't doing the natural things along with it. So just I, to- I really want to embrace that, uh, uh, that whole notion for just a moment because you know, there, there's what is called integrative medicine. And what does it mean? It means you integrate as many modalities as you can to bring about the change that you are looking for under the doctrine of above all do no harm and looking at the risk uh, versus benefit ratio. And I, and just for you to be, you know, on the program talking about the fact that yes, we will use medication if need be, if that's what it takes. And I think it's really important to, to notice, uh, to get the word out that, uh, you know, we're not saying never use medication. Uh, it's, a, it's not our first choice. I think we'd agree with that. But there is absolutely a time and a place for medications for all kinds of problems. and. Gosh, I welcome the fact that we have this pharmacopoeia of 
drugs that can do wonderful things. But like you just mentioned, uh, you know, if you do the natural things, for example, in ADHD, chances are that if you need a medication, the dosage is going to be substantially less and therefore potential side effects are ameliorated. Yeah. I mean, my grandson's case is, is just a beautiful example. Tourette's, I mean, the traditional treatment for Tourette's is either a blood pressure medication or an antipsychotic medication. And given that I've prescribed both of them for 30 years, that's the last thing I really want to do. Um, and so, you know, I reach out to my learned friends and I'm like, what else can we do? And, you know, and if they didn't work and he's going to school, saying inappropriate things, having these facial tics, blurting out um, odd sounds, you, you know, I'll put him on an antipsychotic. But it's going to be the seventh thing I do, not the first. Right. And most child psychiatrists, they have no clue uh, about one through six. They just go to the drugs first. And I think that's wrong. Um, the eye in... The second eye in Bright Minds is immunity and infections. I knew not one thing about this when I was a young psychiatrist because nobody taught us uh, about the impact of Lyme disease on the brain, the impact of herpes uh, on the brain, a toxoplasmosis on the brain. But when I'm looking at these toxic brains, I'm like, well, why is it toxic? I realized I had to start looking at infectious disease processes and the brain. And Autoimmune disorders increase your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, even simple ones like asthma, if you have asthma, it increases your risk 20%. So we like, you know, if, if all the things we're doing aren't working, we'll get an infectious disease panel. Uh, we'll also measure everybody's vitamin D level because that supports, I mean, all of these risk factors basically, but it supports immunity. Uh, also have them eat things like mushrooms and onions and garlic, which can support immunity as well. But if you look at a map of the United States and you look at the highest incidence of schizophrenia, it's going to show the Northeast, um, Michigan uh, and Illinois, and then the West Coast. And then if you overlay on the highest incidence of schizophrenia in the US, the highest incidence of Lyme disease, they're exactly the same. So any of my psychotic patients, we screen them for Lyme. Uh, and there's a story in the book about Chris Christopherson who saw one of our doctors, uh, Mark Philiday, um, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease when, in fact, he had Lyme. And on an antibiotic and hyperbaric oxygen, he went back on the road touring. I mean, stunning. And um, in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, there was a recent editorial that infectious diseases need to be considered in dementia. Well, along those lines, uh, there is a, a study that will I'm, – I'm on the editorial board of that journal that uh, – we can expect a study to come out that strongly correlates this notion of a bacterial and uh, viral infection, uh, even with uh, some of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's. I, I don't want to talk too much about it, but uh, this notion of the brain normally being sterile, um, I, I think, uh, is now wonderfully challenged the work of Dr. Rudolph Tanzi at Harvard. You, you know Rudy, I guess, pretty well. Um, you know, really makes us understand that this plaque, amyloid plaque, is an antimicrobial peptide and is the response uh, to uh, infection as opposed to just accumulating 
and therefore the focal point for pharmaceutical intervention, which has failed dramatically. So I think it's, it's certainly revolutionizing our uh, understanding about, uh, you know, the, the fundamentals here. And, and to get back to the relationship between things like asthma and uh, inflammatory bowel disease, I think, you know, when we see issues related to immunity and inflammation, these are not inflammation of just the lungs in asthma or in the gut in IBD. It becomes a systemic event. Uh, these mediators of inflammation, TNF-alpha, for example, are systemically generated and are, they affect the brain, they affect the heart, they affect every, every part of the body. So, you know, I think we have to take a step back and recognize the body as a holistic uh, unit that what affects one part is going to affect the next. What a concept. I love that. Yeah. And if you have leaky gut, you might have leaky brain. And then things that are not supposed to get in your brain end up in your brain and can cause brain fog and all sorts of other things. Um, the end in bright minds is neurohormone issues. So important. I mean, as a young psychiatrist, I knew if you had low thyroid, you're going to have cognitive impairment. What, what I really didn't uh, appreciate then was if you have low estrogen, if you have low progesterone, if you have low testosterone, that can have a significant negative impact on brain function. And um, relatively new, most people don't know, if you've had a head injury, odds are it can disrupt your hormones as well because it'll hurt the pituitary gland, the master hormone gland. And so checking and optimizing hormones is critical. And, you know, the big intervention is lose the sugar because if you get a sugar burst, it drops your testosterone by 25%. So I always tell people if you share the cheesecake at the restaurant, likely nobody's getting dessert when you get home because no one's going to have testosterone uh, <laughs> left over to make you loving. Uh, <laughs> um, D is diabetes. And it's, you know, brand new study just came out last week. 40% of Americans are obese. Uh, I mean, it's just horrifying. And I published uh, two studies based on the work of my friend Cyrus Raji. Uh, when he was at the University of Pittsburgh, he published the first study. I call it the dinosaur syndrome. He showed as a person's weight went up, the actual physical size of their brain went down. If you were overweight, you had 4% less brain volume and your brain looked eight years older than healthy people. If you were obese, you had 8% less volume and your brain looked 16 years older than the healthy weight population. And so I replicated that study with SPECT and showed decreased prefrontal cortex function in our overweight healthy group and replicated that in our NFL group. So NFL players, same position. If you're overweight compared to someone who's not, you had significantly lower blood flow in the judgment, forethought part of your brain. And so I coined the term the dinosaur syndrome, big body, little brain. You're going to become extinct. Mix that. And you know this, but, you know, the fat on your body is not your friend. It increases inflammatory cytokines, it stores toxins, and it takes healthy testosterone levels and turns it into unhealthy cancer-promoting forms of estrogen. And so we, we need to be careful about our weight in this country. It's why I wrote two books uh, about brain health and 
obesity because it's just critical that we get on top of this. When you mix it with diabetes or pre-diabetes, that damages all your blood vessels. Yeah, there was a great study from um, Gemma uh, many years ago. Actually, it was from the Archives of Neurology at the time that correlated a waist to hip ratio uh, inversely with uh, the size of your hippocampus. The bigger your belly, the smaller your hippocampus. And, that, and you know, when it comes to the hippocampus, size matters a lot. And again, the, the memory processing area of the brain. And I think it's exactly, you know, mechanistically what you're talking about. These cytokines, or perhaps more appropriately from their fat origin, adipokines, are directly toxic to the brain and specifically toxic to the hippocampus, as is cortisol, the stress hormone. So, you know, I know that that sort of fact has always factored into, into your writings and again factors into the new book, you know, the idea of doing your best to engage in activities that help you alleviate stress. If you need to connect the dots, here's the dots. That stress increases cortisol and cortisol is toxic to your hippocampus. And beyond that, uh, the hippocampus acts as a governor over the hypothalamic output into the pituitary. So that has a significant effect then on the hormones that you just mentioned. It's so important. And you know, one of the things I learned in writing this book is it's not just food. That if you're overweight but not diabetic, it's likely you do not have a high toxic load. But if you are overweight and diabetic, the toxic part is really important. And I got that from um, my friend Joe Pizzorno. He has a new book called The Toxins Solution, which is wonderful. I love that book. And it just highlights how important it is to get rid of the toxins in your body because they can be toxic to your pancreas. And then all of a sudden, you're um, not producing enough insulin or your insulin's not becoming effective because of the toxic load in your body. So I love how all these work together. And the last one is sleep. Uh, the S in Bright Minds is sleep. So important. 60 million Americans have sleep-related issues. Sleep apnea because of obesity is skyrocketing. If you stop breathing at night, if you're chronically tired during the day, um, if you snore loudly, you have to be checked. It's so critical. And so many men are diagnosed with sleep apnea, but they won't take the treatment because it's irritating. And they, you know, they won't go back to the sleep doctor and say, hey, this isn't working for me. Help me get this to work. They just throw it to the side. But what we see on scans, there's actually a, pub, a study published last year out of the Montreal Neurological Institute on SPECT, significant decreases in the parietal lobes, the same area that dies early in Alzheimer's disease with people who have sleep apnea. So get sleep apnea treated, really target seven hours of sleep at night. And like all of these risk factors, you want to care about it, avoid anything that promotes the problem and do things that calm the problem. And my favorite sleep intervention, you'll like this, I actually like your thought on this, is hypnosis, is get, getting people to go into a hypnotic trance right at bedtime. And if they wake up, put them back in a trance. And you can do this with apps and um, audios and so on. But when I was an intern at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center, um, I had already taken a month's elective in hypnosis in medical school. So I was hypnotizing everybody. And if somebody wanted a sleeping pill, I'm like, well, I'll leave you an order because it's hard to sleep in the hospital. Um, but can I hypnotize you first? 
and this one man who I was very fond of, he had Parkinson's disease and he had a terrible tremor. And he's like, would you give me a sleeping pill? And I'm like, yes, but would you mind if I hypnotize you first? And he's like, okay. And when I put him in a trance before he went to sleep, his tremor went away. Hmm. I'm like, whoa. And so the next morning on rounds, I told Dr. Jabari, he was my attending at Walter Reed, and he rolled his eyes at me. It's like psychiatric interns. Why do I have to deal with these people? And, and, and I'm like, I mean, you know me, I get excitable. And, and I'm like, no, it really happened. Watch. And so in front of my seven uh, colleagues on rounds, I hypnotize him and his tremor goes away. Um, and we ended up, that was one of my first published papers that in a hypnotic trance, you can decrease Parkinsonian tremors, uh, which I thought was really fascinating because there's some connection between sleep and hypnosis and during sleep, their tremors go away, which I thought was fascinating. Well, uh, I wish I had a nickel for every time people rolled their eyes at, at me for, for my ideas. So, you know, it's been a long time and you just finally have to take a deep breath and smile. Uh, you know, I think it's always lighting that single candle that, that, that makes progress, moving the ball down the field. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this book is really a labor of love. There's also wonderful uh, techniques on how to boost your memory in it as well. But if your brain's not right, those techniques aren't nearly as helpful. Well, you always bring us great information and you're always uh, making it available through public television, through your lectures uh, globally. And uh, I'm, I'm in, in really enjoying the book. I'm, I'm thrilled that you sent it to me. I was thrilled to support it and uh, very excited for you. And I hope we get to share the stage again sometime soon. Probably that'll happen. I will look forward to it. All right, my friend. We'll talk soon. Talk to you uh, later. Thanks, David. Okay. Bye, Dan. Bye. So Dr. Amon's doing some amazing work. And uh, I think uh, you can hear in his voice uh, the level of dedication that this individual has uh, for the betterment of the whole notion of brain health and emotional health. The new book is called Memory Rescue. Uh, it's an excellent book. I reviewed it. You'll find my quote on the title, or rather on the cover. Uh, I think this is really important information. And again, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's all about knowledge. It's all about empowerment through knowledge so that you can make the right choices. I want to thank you for joining us today. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Bye for now.